Thank you, Pastor. What a joy to be back here at Bible Baptist Church, and uh, thank you for being here on a Saturday night. Uh, that used to be the Devil's Night. We used to call Saturday night the Devil's Night in revivals, and so we quit having meetings on Saturday night. Just decided, well, let the devil have that night, I guess. And uh, then the devil switched to another night. So now we're back to Saturday night. So glad you're here. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to be with you in these days. I was thinking as Pastor Keeley was making those comments, one of the first sermons I ever preached was as an intern while I was in college at a church where I was serving for the summer. And uh, the pastor had said uh, during the week, said, now, John, in the fall, we're going we're gonna to separate our youth group into two groups. We're going to have a junior high group and a senior high group. And uh, we're bringing a junior high youth pastor in to take the junior hires. And I want to get them kind of used to that. So this Sunday, I want you to take the junior hires and teach them a lesson during Sunday school class. Well, I really hadn't preached much, hadn't had homiletics and things like that, and really wasn't sure what I was going to do. But I had one sermon. It was called The 30 Pieces of Silver. It was about Judas Iscariot. And so I thought, well, that's what they're getting. I don't know what they need, but that's what they're getting because that's all I got. And uh, so I went down to the kitchen where they had designated for us to meet. And uh, I, I was in pretty good shape until the pastor's wife walked in and sat on the back row. And I thought, oh, man, he sent his wife down here to spy on me, you know. <laughs> and uh, now her husband was a tremendous preacher. In fact, that's why I went there to intern for the summers, because I just enjoyed his preaching. And I wanted to be under that preaching for the summer. And I thought, man, she is going to be so disappointed in what she gets for Sunday school. But I did my best, and, and uh, the junior hires, they, they stayed awake as far as I could tell, and I did the best I could. When I finished, they all went out, but, but Mrs. Poorman, she, she kind of made her way toward me, and uh, she was a very small, petite woman, and she had her Bible in her hand, and she walked up to me and she said, John, that was good, that was good. And I, I thought, you're just being kind, you know, uh, thank you for being kind. And I, I said to her, I said, Mrs. Poorman, I don't know where your husband gets all, all of his sermons. And I'll never forget, she held her Bible out toward me, and she said, they're all in here. And she walked away. And that was some of the best advice I ever got, and I've been plagiarizing ever since. <laughs> and I'm thankful that God allows us to plagiarize his word. And uh, sometimes we don't even have to give him credit, but he still uses it in the lives of people because his word does not return void. So thank you for being here tonight and giving me an opportunity to preach God's word to you. Well, take your Bible. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah in the 20th chapter. We're just going to look at one verse to begin with, but keep your Bible open to this chapter. We'll look at several other verses in just a moment as we get into the message. But Jeremiah chapter 20, and I'd like to read verse 9. Jeremiah 20 and verse 9. Jeremiah is speaking here, and he said, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. No matter how hard the world works at it, this place called earth is never going to be a perfect place. Now, man works real hard at it. I mean, through sociology and psychology and, 
and uh, medicine and all these different things, the world works very hard at trying to make a utopia here on earth where you and I can live. But it's never going to be perfect. Now, at one time it was. When God created the heavens and the earth, he stood back on that sixth day and the Lord saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. God had created a perfect place. But we read a little further into the book of Genesis and the Bible says in chapter 3 and verse 1, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said unto the woman, hath God said ye should not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God hath said, you shall not eat of it, neither shalt thou touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said, you shall not surely die, for God doth know in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, And a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Adam and Eve violated God's command. They sinned against God. God had told them in Genesis 2, of all the trees in the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat of it. For the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. But Adam and Eve disobeyed that command. And now the Bible tells us in chapter 3 and verse number 17, God says, Because thou hast eaten of the fruit of the tree, whereof I commanded thee, saying, Thou shouldest not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. The curse that God pronounced upon this earth because of sin. And you and I know tonight that as we look around our culture and we see the devastation, we see the diseases, we see the division, we see the destruction, it's all a result of that curse, isn't it? It's all a result of that man Adam and his wife sinning against God and now this curse is placed upon all of mankind as a result. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look around this world tonight, it's pretty discouraging. I mean, you see all these things going on. You watch the news, which we probably should quit doing, I guess. But you watch the news, you listen to people talk, and there's just so much that is divisive, so much that is devastating, so much that is discouraging. One of our staff members passed away today. Our Spanish pastor's wife went home to be with the Lord. Not an elderly lady, but suffering from this COVID, and... uh, Went to be with the Lord today. You know, we hear those things, we see what's going on, and it's discouraging. We look at our country and all of the division, all of the devastation, and we wonder, where is this going? What's the future hold? What what about our kids? What about our grandkids? What's it going to be like for them? You know, it kind of reminds me of when I was back in college. 
When I was in college, there was hardly a day where a preacher did not come to chapel and preach about the fact that the United States of America was never going to live to see its 200th birthday. I mean, they told us as college students, by July 4th, 1976, we are going to disintegrate as a nation. We are going to destroy ourselves. We're not going to make it to our 200th birthday. I mean, day after day after day after day, that's what we heard. And it was, you know, the handwriting was on the wall. I mean, our nation had turned away from God. When I went to first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, I went to a little country school, didn't go to kindergarten. I grew up in Watertown, Wisconsin. Watertown, Wisconsin is the home of America's first kindergarten, 1848. I'm older than you think. (laughs) But you can still go to Watertown, Wisconsin and go into the little building there at the Octagon House where, where the first kindergarten was ever taught in America, Watertown, Wisconsin. But when I went, they didn't have kindergarten. But I remember first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, there was a speaker up in the corner of the classroom. And every morning we would come in and the principal would come on that speaker. And he would say, boys and girls, I hope you're all sitting at your desk. Because I want to read to you a verse out of the Bible. And he would read a Bible verse. And then he would say, now boys and girls, I want everybody to fold your hands on your desk. Close your eyes. Bow your head because we're going to pray. We're going to ask God to give us a good day. And he would pray. You know, I went to fifth grade, same school. Speaker was still up in the corner, but it was only used for announcements. Because in 1962, prayer and Bible reading were taken out of the public school. And many people thought this is the beginning of the end. We're taking God out of our culture. We're we're taking God out of our children's lives. We're we're no longer putting them under that influence. And this is the beginning of the end. And and they began to teach evolution and other things in the school. And, 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 And the rock music culture began to move across the nation in the 60s. And then the the free sex movement followed that. And I mean, it just seemed like there was a there was an evolution taking place in our country that was going to destroy us. I remember the 70s and those days of high inflation. Remember that? I mean, first, uh, first car I ever bought, 1972 Datsun. First car I ever bought on my own, 18.5% interest. That's unheard of today. First house my wife and I ever bought, 1977, 10.5% interest. Imagine that. I remember in 1973, the gas wars, there was no gas available on the weekends. There were no gas stations open on Saturday and Sunday. All closed down because there was a gas shortage. And I was an evangelist. I'm trying to travel from from place to place doing revivals. And uh, I'd finish on Friday night, travel Saturday to get to the next church. There were no gas stations. I had a truck with, with 40 gallons of fuel on board. I had five five-gallon gas cans in the back of my truck full of gas. I had two 30-pound uh, 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 containers of propane. I mean, we were a moving bomb. Had we had been hit on the road, we would have destroyed the country. And I remember thinking in those days, you know, this will bring our nation back to God. This will cause us to seek after God. And I remember people getting shot in those gas lines so people could move up another spot. Amazing. And people said, we'll never make it. 
1976. We look around tonight and we see the chaos, we see the confusion, we see all of the, the contradictions in every aspect of life, but can I encourage you tonight to lift up your eyes above all of that and set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth? Can I encourage you tonight to, to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Can I encourage you to think about what Isaiah said, thou keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Tonight as we look at the life of Jeremiah, I believe there are some similarities to the time that Jeremiah finds himself in, in chapter 20, to our day today. And I want to make three simple observations tonight from the life of Jeremiah that I hope will be an encouragement to you. First of all, I see a universal collapse. Now, by the time we get to Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah is not a young man. Jeremiah's been around for a little bit. He's been around the block a few times, as we like to say. This wasn't his first rodeo. Uh, again, a phrase that we like to use to characterize somebody that has some experience. Jeremiah lived during the time of Josiah the king. Do you remember Josiah? He was the eight-year-old boy that came to the throne. Imagine a king of a country being eight years old. And not only did Josiah take the throne as a very young man, but he followed a very wicked time in the nation. For 57 years prior to the reign of Josiah, the nation had been involved in all kinds of idolatrous worship. Josiah's father Ammon, his grandfather Manasseh, had led the nation for 57 years into all kinds of false worship. Molten images, carved works, graven images, groves were scattered throughout the entire nation and people were worshiping everything but the God of heaven. But Josiah comes to the throne in 2 Chronicles 34, it tells us at the age of eight, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, at the age of 16, Josiah began to seek after the God of David, his father. So he's not going to follow his physical heritage now of his father Amnon or his grandfather Manasseh, but he's going to turn his eyes to the spiritual father, David. And he begins to pull the nation back toward God. The first thing he does is he decides, we've got to assemble. We've got to meet together. We've got to worship God. And so he takes some money out of the treasury and he gives it to the workmen to repair and amend the house of the Lord. It was in shambles, 57 years. It had not been used. So now they begin to repair and amend the house of God. And as they did, they found a book. But they didn't know what it was. So they took it to Shaphan, the scribe. And when Shaphan read this book, he recognized it as the very word of God, the law, the Torah of the Old Testament. And so they take it to Josiah and they read the word of God to Josiah. And when Josiah heard the word of God read, he rent his clothes, which was symbolic of his humility before God. And Josiah says, this is why we're in trouble. This is why the nation is, is in trouble. We've rejected God and his word. So he calls all the nation together and they stood. And imagine how long it would take to read publicly Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But they stood and they read the law. 
the young, the old, the men, the women, the adults, the children, they stood as the word of God was read. And when they finished, Josiah said, now, ladies and gentlemen, what you just heard is the way I'm going to live. And what you just heard is the way I'm going to lead this nation. And he called the people to stand to it. And all the people stood to it. They agreed. And for 31 years, the nation of Israel experiences one of the greatest revivals on record in the Bible. Jeremiah has lived through that entire time. He has seen the nation go from a wicked idolatry to revival. But Jeremiah also lives long enough to see Josiah leave the throne. And following Josiah was King Jehoahaz. And then Jehoiada. And then Zedekiah. And those next three kings took the nation right back into idolatry. And Jeremiah is crying out. He's saying, folks, we've been here before. We're making the same mistake. Let's not go that way again. Let's not do that again. Come back to God. And he begins to cry out to the nation in the book of Jeremiah, calling them to return to God. In chapter 2 and verse 19, he says, Thy own wickedness shall correct thee, thy own backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and his word is not in thee. He begins to cry out in chapter 4 and verse 3. He says, break up your fallow ground. Take away the foreskins off your heart. He said, you've become calloused. You've become desensitized to God's word. You've got to get tender and sensitive to God once again. In chapter 4 and verse 22, he says, My people are sottish. They're foolish. They are wise to do evil. But to do good, they have no understanding. Boy, does that ring a bell? Does that sound like America? Wise to do evil, but to do good, we have no understanding? Boy, we're really good at corruption in this country. And we're even better at covering it up. But ask somebody to quote John 3.16. What? What do you mean? We're wise to do evil. But to do good we have no knowledge. And so in chapter 4. Jeremiah begins to call the nation back to God. In chapter 7 he says amend your ways and your doings. In chapter 8, he cries out to the leadership of the land, both spiritual and political. And he says, the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they've rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. In chapter 9, he starts that chapter by saying, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And By the time we get to chapter 14, I'm sorry, chapter 13, Jeremiah begins to predict the collapse, a universal collapse. He predicts the Babylonian captivity. In chapter 13 and verse 19, he says, The cities of the south shall be carried away. They shall be wholly carried away. In chapter 19, if you want to look up at verse 15, of the chapter before our text, he says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'll bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the evil that I have pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks 
that they might not hear my words. Jeremiah is saying, we've pushed the envelope too far, folks. We've stepped over the line. God is going to allow us to collapse. Look how he describes it in chapter 20 now in verse 4. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I'll make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies. Thine eyes shall behold it. it I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive into Babylon and shall slay them with the sword. A universal collapse. Look how he describes it specifically in verse 5. He says, I'll deliver all the strength of this city. All your military muscle, all your defense systems, they're gone. You have no defense. He goes on in verse 5, he says, all the labors thereof, all your work, your employment, your sources of income, gone. He says, and all the precious things thereof, all your culture, all your refinement, your sports, your entertainment, your theater, it's all gone. Then he says, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah, all your, all your bank accounts, your retirement funds, your reservoirs, it's all gone. This is a universal collapse. And by the way, none of this surprises Jeremiah. He's been predicting it. He's been trying to call out to the people. He's been trying to get them to amend their ways, to turn back while there's still time. He's calling them to revival, but they're not listening. Now this universal collapse. It doesn't surprise Jeremiah. But notice, secondly, what does surprise him is an unrelenting criticism. Jeremiah is not surprised that the nation has pushed the envelope too far. He's not surprised that God is about to destroy them. What he does find surprising is that he's going to get blamed for it. He's going to be put at fault. If you look at chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, Now Pashur, the son of Emer, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. Now Pashur is identified in verse 1 as a priest. We know Jeremiah is a prophet. Now these two offices were certainly different in the Old Testament. They had different roles under God's governance as to the nation. But in a sense, they were equal. If you were making a flow chart of how God was operating in the Old Testament, you would put the priest and the prophet in somewhat equal places on that flow chart. It was through the priests and the prophets that God gave his word to the people. They didn't have a book like we enjoy today in the Bible. It was not a, a complete canon at that time. So God spoke to the people through the priests or the prophets. Sometimes he would speak through a king, but most oftenly God would speak through a prophet or through a priest. So these men, though their, their operational roles were different, they were somewhat on an equal plane. So here comes this prophet Jeremiah into the territory of Pashur, the priest, and he's preaching this doom and gloom message of destruction. And Pasher doesn't like it. And so he takes things into his own hands. 
And the Bible says in verse 2, he smote Jeremiah. The word smote there in the Hebrew carries the idea of smiting with the hand or with, a sh- with an object. So here is physical abuse upon the prophet by the priest Pashua. Then it says in verse 2, he put him in stocks and set him at the high gate of Benjamin. He places his feet in stocks. After he beats him, he puts his feet in stocks and places him at the high gate of Benjamin, which was the place where people went in and out of the city. So now people go by and they can laugh at Jeremiah. They can make fun of him. He's been dethroned. He's been defrocked. He's been degraded. And by the way, none of this is legal. This is one man in a position of power taking things into his own hands. There were false prophets in the Old Testament. There were from time to time people who would preach a false message. And when they did, if someone suspected it to be not thus saith the Lord, they could report that message to the high priest. The high priest would call together a council of priests. They would hear the message and they would determine whether it was the true message from God or a false message. And if it was a false message, then that prophet was dealt with accordingly. But none of that is taken into consideration here. The law, the customs, they're all set aside. One man decides in his power, I'm going to stop this prophet Jeremiah. So here's Jeremiah now, derided. In fact, look at uh, verse 7. Jeremiah says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily, everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoiled, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. Jeremiah is saying, God, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't in my job description. All I did was preach what you told me to preach. And the fact that the nation has collapsed, the fact that you've judged the nation is not a surprise to anybody. But God, you didn't tell me that I'm the one that's going to take the brunt of this. You deceived me. You lied to me, God. You you, you promised me blessing for being faithful to your word. And this is what I get? I made a, a laughing stock daily. I'm, I'm in derision daily. People come by and laugh. God, I'm sorry. I'm out. I want nothing to do with this. In fact, verse 9, again, we already read it. He says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me. Verse 7, then in verse 9, he says, Then I said, I'll not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Jeremiah says, I quit. This isn't right. This isn't fair. This this is not according to what you said. And so, God, I'm out. See, Jeremiah did not have the privilege that you and I have to go to the New Testament. Because if he had the New Testament, he could have read words that we can read where Paul wrote, Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He could have read the words of Peter where Peter said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that shall try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But see, Jeremiah didn't have those words to comfort him. 
He didn't have those words to encourage him. He didn't know that Jesus would later say, if, they, if the world hate you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. He didn't, he didn't know that. And so Jeremiah says, I'm out. I'm done. And the devil thinks that if he can bring enough pressure and enough persecution to the people of God, he can destroy the message. The, the devil thinks that if he can just close a few churches, if he can just silence a few pulpits, if he can just discourage God's people with enough pressure, enough, enough persecution, that everything will just stop when it comes to the cause of Christ. And the devil laughs when churches are empty. The devil laughs when, when parking lots are vacant. The devil laughs when the pulpit is silent. He thinks, I got it now. I'm in control now. That message of the Bible, that message of truth, that message of the gospel is silenced. <laughs> but i got to tell you something. The devil has a very bad memory. Because I want you to see finally tonight an underlying condition. Now look at verse 9 again very carefully. Jeremiah says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Period. Now ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how much time passes between that period and the next word. Maybe it was only a few seconds. Maybe it was a few moments. I tend to think it was longer than that. I think maybe Jeremiah stood up from the desk, put the writing instrument down, walked out the room, closed the door with no intention of going back. He said, I'm not speaking for you anymore. I'm done. But I'm glad the verse doesn't end with that period. Whether it was a few seconds, whether it was a few moments, whether it was a few days, look at the next phrase. But his word was in mine heart. As a burning fire shot up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. It sounds like he's been away for a while. He, he, he's run from God's place. He's run from that will of God in his life for a moment. He's, he's walked out of the room, and he said, I quit. But there was an underlying condition. There was something in his heart. And he couldn't forbear. He couldn't stay in that place away from God. He had to go back in. He had to pick the pen back up. He had to write another chapter. Why? Because inside every child of God is something called the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit burns within us. 
And the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And may I add, he is in you and greater than anything in this world. We can't quit. The devil thinks, if I can apply enough pressure, if I can just make it so inconvenient, if I can just make it so uncomfortable, if I can just bring enough pressure on God's people, I can stop the message. You see, the devil laughed one day when they, when they closed that tomb outside Jerusalem and put that stone over the covering and sealed it with the Roman seal and set the guard. And, and the devil clicked up his heels in glee and he thought, now I've got him, I've stopped him, the Messiah will have no more influence. But he forgot that behind that stone was the very one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Oh, the devil thought he had victory one day as they drug the apostle Paul outside the city limits and they left him for dead. And the devil thought, now we'll hear this babbler no more. Now we've silenced his message. But all of a sudden that body began to move. And that fellow stood back up and shook the dust off his clothes. And he said, though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And he just went on to the next town and preached again. One day they said to Peter, you will never say the name Jesus Christ ever again. <laughs> and Peter said, we could not but speak the things that we both heard and seen. Just like the old prophet Amos who said, the lion hath roared, who cannot fear? The Lord hath spoken, who cannot but prophesy? You see, inside of us, ladies and gentlemen, there is a living God, and that God lives within us, and we have to pick up the pen. We have to write another chapter of our life. We have to go forward for the cause of Christ. God is not dead. He's alive, and he lives within us. We can't quit. The devil's going to keep the pressure on. He's going to keep the persecution coming. But we have something greater inside of us. I remember July 4th, 1976 very well. I started a revival that day in El Paso, Texas. It was a good morning, good Sunday school hour, filled auditorium for church, people excited about a week of revival meetings, some good decisions at the close of those morning services, and a good crowd back at night, not jam-packed, but a good, comfortable crowd in that auditorium, good, lively singing, and Good response to the preaching. Good fellowship after. But I'll tell you, I was heavy. I, my heart was heavy. You see, I drank the Kool-Aid. I thought, this is it. These poor people don't know it, but we ain't going to make it till midnight. Something's going to happen. We're going to blow up. This thing's over. We've, 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 we've dishonored God. We've, we've, we've turned our back on him and and we're not going to see our 200th birthday. I mean, I'd heard it day after day after day through college, and I drank the Kool-Aid. I, I had been told that all the major interstates in this country were built for our military. That's why they put walls up along the suburbs there to, so that when they closed down those exits, they'd have us. That's what I was taught. And I believed it. When everybody left that night after church, I was staying in a little room there at the church, and I put my Bible away and changed my clothes. I started walking. And that night I walked the city of El Paso. Wouldn't recommend it tonight, but this was 1976. 
El Paso is a long city east to west. It's not very wide north to south, very long east to west. In fact, today, much bigger city now, but you can't drive across that, that city in good traffic in less than an hour. It's a long city. It borders along the Mexican border there with the great city of Juarez, right over the border, Mexico. I began to walk those streets and I began to pray. And I said, God, I know we don't deserve another day. As a nation, we've turned our back on everything we were founded on. We were founded on the Bible. We were founded on Christian principles. But we've turned our back on you. We've kicked you out. And God, we deserve whatever we got coming. But I said, Lord, I'm just getting started. And I'd sure like to hold some revivals if I could. Lord, my wife and I, we're, we haven't been married but a couple of years. We'd like to have some kids. See if maybe we could raise them to serve the Lord. Lord, could you give us a shot at it? I just prayed. I walked, prayed, walked, prayed, walked. I looked at my watch. It was 12.05. And I thought, hey, it's after midnight. It's July 5th. I'm still here. We're still here. We made it. Shall I fit? And then I thought, no, yeah, yeah, but I'm on central time. God might be on mountain time. I, I better keep praying. I walked some more and prayed some more. You know, one o'clock passed, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock. And I walked back onto that church property as the sun was coming up over that eastern horizon on Del Paso. God didn't say anything audibly to me. I didn't hear a voice. But I know what he said. To my heart. He said, John, you just be faithful with every day I give you and let me worry about the calendar. Can I ask you tonight to just be faithful today? And with every day God gives us and let God worry about the schedule? He's still on the throne. He's still in control. The devil hasn't gotten stronger than him. And all of the chaos and the confusion and the uncertainty, God still reigns. And all he asks of us is to be faithful. Faithful as a Christian. Faithful as a church member. Faithful as a mom or dad. Faithful as a young person. Faithful as a parent, faithful at your job, just be faithful. That's all that's going to matter when it does all end, is whether or not you and I were faithful. He's got the schedule. And like Jeremiah, tonight, if you're discouraged, if you thought about giving up, go back in the room. Pick up the writing instrument. Write another chapter of your life. 2021 could be the most exciting year since the book of Acts. Now those folks spent some time in jail. It was pretty exciting in there. I told Dr. Gibbs, I'm not afraid to go to jail. They took all the bad people out. Jail's probably safer than my home. 
I don't know what's coming, but I want to be faithful. And I hope you do too. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, I know in a sense I've preached to the choir tonight because these folks are here on a Saturday night. And they're here because they love you. They're here because they haven't lost faith in what you can do. And I'm grateful for that. But Lord, I know that if someone like Jeremiah could get discouraged, if someone like Jeremiah could feel the pressure, if Jeremiah would cave to the persecution, then I know that I certainly can. And I know that my friends that have come tonight can as well. Lord, we want to be encouraged tonight by looking above all of this that we see around us and set our affection once again on things above, not on the things of the earth. God, may we be faithful as we seek to run our race with our eyes upon Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's someone listening tonight to my voice that needs to rededicate their life here at the beginning of this new year, and say, Lord, I don't know what's coming, I don't know what's ahead for me or my family or my nation, but Lord, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful every day that you give me. Lord, may we re-up that commitment to you tonight. Lord, if there's somebody here or listening tonight that does not know you as Savior, oh, Lord, help them to trust you tonight. But, Lord, it's a, it's a scary thing to live in a world like we live in tonight without the Lord. And so I pray that you'd help those that may not know you to, to look to Jesus, the one who died for them, the one who was buried and rose again that third day so that they could have eternal life. May they turn to you tonight in faith, asking you to forgive their sins and give them eternal life. Lord, we'll thank you for every victory that's won tonight. In Jesus' name, let's stand.